Welcome to For Your Listening Pleasure, a podcast that dives deep into important topics and fosters understanding by exploring captivating interviews with diverse guests, where we discuss how their unique experiences have shaped them into the individuals they are today. This podcast is committed to having honest and thought-provoking conversations to arouse curiosity and convey essential messages of empathy, inclusion, and diversity, one conversation at a time. I am your host, Mallory Waxman. Today on the podcast, I'm excited to be welcoming Helen Martini and Maria Vorovich, the visionary co-founders of GoodQuest. GoodQuest is a rapidly growing company challenging traditional research norms and recently was recognized as one of the top fastest growing companies by Inc. Magazine. As the Chief Insights Officer and Chief Strategy Officer, Holland and Maria share a unique journey from their gray group encounter to leading the charge at the anti-research research firm. Discover how their unorthodox methodologies, including taste testing and bars, yield emotionally intelligent insights. Good Quest is living at the intersection of creativity and rigor and aims to humanize data collection using psychotherapy techniques and academic research principles. Join us for a deep dive into market research, innovation, as well as their individual journeys that ultimately led them to create good quests. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Colin and Maria, thank you both so much for joining me. I'm very excited to have this conversation and it's actually my first episode with not one, but two guests. I really want to focus a little bit on each of your individualized upbringings. So Maria, if it's okay, I'm going to go ahead and start with you. And what I found really interesting when we talked a few weeks ago was that in 1996, your family escaped Belarus and you came to this country. You were woken up in the middle of the night by your parents and said, come on, let's go. And then that was it. Can you talk to us a little bit about what you remember during that time? And also what was life like for you growing up in a new country where you didn't speak the language and it wasn't technically your home? Yeah, absolutely. And and just to give context in terms of why the wake up and the departure from Belarus needed to be so dramatic. But part of the reason is that it wasn't it wasn't welcomed to leave the country. So Belarus is still one of the last dictatorships in Europe today. Um, I'm sure your listeners might know a little bit about it because of everything happening with Ukraine and the conflict. And so my parents couldn't tell me that we were going to be leaving because I was a child, right? So I might tell someone and the news might travel and we might not be able to leave, right? Someone might stop us. It was that scary. So I had no context. I had no language. Um, the only word of English I spoke was, uh, the only word I knew was elephant and Lord knows why. (laughs) So it it was extremely traumatic. And what I remember is literally being woken up, it being dark, my mom holding me. Next thing I know I'm on a flight. I'd never been on a flight before. I was sick the entire time. And then afterwards, you know, we landed in an apartment in Brooklyn and it was six people to a one bedroom apartment. There weren't enough beds. We were sleeping on cots. And the very visceral memory I have is turning on the lights and the walls just crawled. Um, And it was literal crawling of cockroaches because we were in such a bad neighborhood and in such a poor um, apartment complex. And so, you know, the, the next few months kind of unraveled with us trying to figure out, you know, where we were going to get money from, how we were going to survive, how we were going to eat. Um, you know, and, and there was a bit of trauma, to be honest with you, you know, they enrolled me in school right away. And 
Um, I was so nervous and so shy that I wasn't eating lunch and no one could tell my parents I, I hadn't been eating lunch because my parents didn't speak English. So, um, so that's kind of it in a nutshell of our, of our story coming here and landing here and, and just trying to figure things out. And then Holland, you grew up in New York as well in Cold Spring, um, but you had a little bit different experience. Um, you were born and raised in the United States, but your mom was a welder or your dad was a welder and your mom was a nanny slash teacher. And when we spoke prior, you talked about how um, your mom was really strategic in the way where she was getting jobs at schools to help you get a better education. Can you talk a little bit about what that experience was like growing up? Yeah, absolutely. Um, to be honest, I, I think I acknowledge the experience much more now, especially as a mother, than I did at the time. I don't think I really understood what was going on. Um, I I remember thinking it was really normal to have my mom everywhere. Um, and so, you know, when we needed daycare and childcare, because my parents couldn't afford childcare, my mom got a job at a daycare and I went with her because I was free of charge and my mom was always there. And then when I went to school, my mom got a job at that school because the way our school districts work, they're funny. I won't get into logistics of <laughs> school districts in upstate New York. Um, but so she would drive me to school every day and then drive me home every day. And she worked there. And if I needed anything, I could always go to her. Um, retroactively, that is such a sacrifice that she was making at the time. I couldn't help but think that I was being limited by the fact that my mother was there. I couldn't like enjoy kids. Like it, I just did, couldn't like roughhouse or just be a kid without knowing that like my mom was hanging around, which is very different from like Maria, who grew up in the city, who was taking subways by the time I was probably like climbing on trees. <laughs> um, and so my maturity level was definitely a little bit different to used to having my mom there. But I think retroactively, now I understand the importance of it. I think before I thought she was just being a helicopter parent, quite frankly. And now I understand that she was really going out of her way to make sure that, you know, I had childcare and that I wasn't being left alone. Um, I grew up I could throw a stone at the Appalachian Trail. So a lot of my time was alone just because I was not in a neighborhood. It's not like New York City. It's not even like cul-de-sacs. Like my closest friend was 10 miles away. So it was a lot of time by myself just in the woods with my brother. And so in the meantime, I think she was really making sure I had social activities. And yeah, like I said, I didn't notice it much at the time, but retroactively, I see the sacrifice. And what I thought was so interesting hearing both you describe your upbringing is that there's a few characteristics that I think link both of you. One is that you guys were both a little shy, which I thought was really interesting given that you now are co-leading a company and to be a founder, you definitely cannot be shy. But also both the pressure that you guys put on yourselves to be successful. Obviously, Maria, you have that immigrant mindset. And I believe that when you told your parents you wanted to go to college more into the arts, they said over our dead immigrant bodies. And for you, Holland, you grew up in a way where you went to school and then college, I believe, with very wealthy individuals and you saw the other side of what life could be like and you wanted to work towards that. So can you talk to me a little bit about how your upbringing 
really shaped who you guys are individually. And then we'll talk about how you ended up meeting one another. Absolutely. And and I'll start to to kind of make things seamless. But I think for for me, you know, you kind of covered it in the sense of being an immigrant. To some degree, failure isn't an option because you have survival instinct, right? Um, And I think that shaped me so much to think that you just have to work as hard as possible. You just have to, you know, keep forging the path ahead. And if the path ends up in a dead end, you have to veer sideways. Um, And I think that that experience directly impacted how we thought about Good Class and what it was like to start the company, because every time we would hit a dead end, it wasn't, you know, okay, well, we tried, we failed. It was, how do we keep going? Um, For me personally, you know, I I think that trait can be exhausting, (laughs) but it also is um, that tenacity that I think you know, will live in you forever, um, having escaped a country, having learned, you know, a new language, having not having the funds to buy furniture and needing a way to scrounge for it, right? All of those things are things that they never leave you. Um, and and they, you lead with it day to day, even as an adult. Yeah. And I think for me, it was more just being exposed to possibilities. My world was really small and I had to have a huge imagination at the time. So like I said, I was like growing up in the woods. My day-to-day was building forts with my brother. And like, we would have like little societies back there with like roads and different areas. And that's how our imagination was just all we had to work with. And so being exposed to possibility was really interesting to me. I don't think it was necessarily the money or the wealth as much as it was the opportunity that was really exciting and really inspirational. And I think the shyness ultimately was one of my best qualities because it was something I had to really overcome. And I was put in a few different circumstances where it was like switching schools or just being exposed to people that I had never been exposed to before, where ultimately I had to shape shift the way I had been brought up in everything I knew to acclimate and learn new people. Um, Maybe that's what led me to want to be a researcher and want to understand new people, but it forced a side of me, forced a side out of me that I had never really had to tap into before. And I think when you have to do that growing up multiple times and start getting comfortable doing that, it really starts shaping like what creates a good entrepreneur because being an entrepreneur and starting a business is not comfortable and it's never just I would say it's rarely just natural. Um, It takes a lot of resilience and a lot of tapping into sides of yourself that you're not necessarily familiar with. And I think that shy facet was one thing that Maria and I also ultimately bonded over um, as a reason as to why we felt that we operate in the way we do. And, And it is one big reason in which I think we built such respect for one another, because it is a huge thing to overcome being shy and then becoming, you're not necessarily outgoing. And Maria says it all the time. She's like, no one would ever guess that she's an introvert. She's like the most outgoing introvert you'll ever meet. And I relate to that a lot because it's, we operate in a way that's not always comfortable, but that we've become immune to doing and feel confident in doing. And I think it's, it's an interesting dichotomy that happens in our brain when we're on quote unquote. Well, you actually just hit on something that I can relate to. And I'm sure listeners can too. It's that concept of being on. Um, I'm very much an introvert, but when I need to be on, I can do it. You would never know that I love just sitting at home or reading or my alone time, or I call it my recharging time. 
because when you are on, it's exhausting, especially I'm sure as a female founder where people are asking you questions and you have to be thinking almost two steps ahead of what anyone's going to ask you. Because if you don't, you might have that one missed opportunity where someone goes, we don't want to invest or use them because they weren't quick enough or whatever it could be. But you both met at Gray in New York. And what I love about you two is I think of it kind of like yin and yang. Maria's the creative, but Holland has like the data analytical aspect and the way you guys both have mutual respect for each other when you were meeting um, turned into this company. Can you talk about what's your first memory of one another? Was there like that one meeting where you kind of went, aha, I can see my equal here? Or did you butt heads and then get respect for one another? Yeah, I love that you asked that. Um, And people will probably hear me say this all the time because everyone just assumes we were like best friends who wanted to start a company together and like lollipops and candy were just like falling from the sky. (laughs) Um, But it wasn't that at all. I think, you know, we have a very different way of thinking and working. And naturally it's, it's almost polar opposite in the sense that I work very linearly. One plus one equals two for me and it always will. Um, and what Maria can do is she can make one and one plus one equal three if she wants to, (laughs) um, and tell a story in this big, beautiful, vibrant way. And so when we were paired together with work, I'd say oftentimes we didn't necessarily butt heads, but we thought differently enough where we had to constantly start from scratch, um, until we both mutually ended on a place where we both felt good about the project, about the insight, about the strategy. And so in order to do that, there was natural give and take in terms of how we communicated. And I wouldn't say it was always pretty, but it was always respectful. Um, And we started realizing that when we could come to a solution together for a problem that our client had, it was bulletproof because the full brain was covered, if you will, The, the analytical thinking, the rigor, the understanding, the insight, and the coming with something super concrete and then taking it and being able to make it sticky, make it human, make it unique to the brand, make it something that people will get excited about and like want to put their teeth into. That was really came from Maria. And so when you have both of those at the same time, you ultimately end up with, like I said, you know, a, a bulletproof solution, if you will. And, and that's when we really realized we were onto something. Um, you know, we worked really well together. We respected each other and we ultimately saw a lot of success at our career there. Um, and we're eager to extend that into the world together as a unit. I don't know if Maria, you have anything to add <laughs> or if you I know, covered it. was just so beautifully said. I, I think, I think ultimately just to reiterate, you know, the, the person you trust the most is the one that can disagree with you and can challenge you and can make you think in a way that you never have before. And for me, that's always been Holland since the day I met her. Um, and so again, you know, really kind of grateful for that partnership and People often ask us, what's the one piece of advice you can give after five years of business ownership? And, and I always say, find a partner that you trust that pushes you. Um, I, I stand by to this day, best piece of advice for starting your own business. What I love about GoodQuest is that you look at, you're not like just a data brand. You really are looking at brand strategy and marketing strategy. And I think something that a lot of individuals who aren't in the marketing field don't understand is agency versus brand. Can you just explain that a little bit? And then we'll dive in what GoodQuest does and a little bit more about the company. Absolutely. And the way to think about it is is brand is all-encompassing and can really be 
something that you build, no matter if you are an agency, no matter if you are a goods company, right? Agency just means um, you provide a service. But again, you know, for us, the Good Quest brand is all about being approachable and human and likable and fun, um, right? An agency is just our, our business structure. So that's really kind of the way to think about it. Um, and brand is is really becoming such an interesting thing. Uh, I'm sure a lot of your listeners are, are seeing this, but brand is now extending to the individual, right? We are own, we are all our own individual brands. Um, the persona we create in social media, the persona we create online, our blogs, the way we dress, the way we talk. So brand is, is really this all-encompassing, really interesting thing that I think is, is becoming very relatable, whether you're a business owner, a founder, whether you work at an agency, whether you work um, at a company, uh, you know, that, that provides goods, um, et cetera. So I want to read a few things uh, based on good quests. One is that you guys will never do a standard focus group behind a two-way mirror. It doesn't always feel like that's authentic, that you will never be mechanical in your survey designs, and you'll never subject your respondents to a clinical survey interface. You also talk about how GoodQuest is a hybrid market research and strategy firm to break the orthodoxy of qualitative and quantitative methodologies, ultimately bringing more empathy to the data field. I know maybe to some, I might've just said a lot of jargon, but to those who understand it, we've all seen movies where people are doing focus groups, where someone's sitting behind the mirror, you're getting asked boring questions. Do you like this product? Do you not like this product? How do you feel about this product? And it's not in its original space. So if you're testing, let's say alcohol brands, maybe you should test it in a bar, not in like a sterile room. But you also really discussed on how bringing empathy into data and understanding that, which when we spoke earlier and you mentioned that, my heart skipped a little bit of a beat that a lot of brands don't realize empathy plays a huge role. Can you talk a little bit about how you are really breaking the mold with good quests? Yeah, I can start here. Um, I think, you know, it all started a lot personally as well of just starting to realize that oftentimes people who work on these brands or people who even research these brands aren't the people buying the product for the brands, right? And so what we often fall into is this trope of, and I'll give you an example. We used to work for a fast food company and we all live in New York and we'd be like, well, you know, everybody everybody eats dinner at 10 p.m. Like, no, that's not a thing. It's just what you think. Um, so we started realizing real quick, really quickly that you need to put yourself in one's shoes in order to truly understand them. Um, so when we say empathy, we don't mean a sob story, right? We don't mean, you know, making our respondents cry, which I often joke about. We more mean putting yourself in someone's shoes to truly understand what they're going through, whether it's good, bad, happy, sad. And so the way that we do that is really not only by asking them the right questions, but asking them questions in a way that is resonant to the respondents. So how would you want to be spoken to as a person? How would you want to interact with a brand or a product? So the whole reason that we came about with, you know, ditching focus groups in their traditional form, which again is a two-way mirror, 15 people you've never met before eating a Subway sandwich, maybe some peanut M&Ms. Um, instead, you know, if, for example, we have a, a 
partner, a client that we work with who is an alcohol company, why wouldn't we do product testing in a bar, in an environment with people your age at a place that you would be so that you can truly understand that how you would interact? Um, not only does it give better insights, it, it's it's better quality of people who show up there because it's the people who would really be drinking your product. Um, same with the way in which we formulate our questions in a traditional study. So people would call that a survey. Um, you know, we really break the mold in terms of writing very traditional questions. I think oftentimes you write a question very traditional, very flat footed. So you get an answer that is completely objective, no questions asked. Um, but what that does is people just pick the, the answer to the question that's closest to them, but not necessarily exactly how they feel. Um, and so for us, by breaking the mold and really copywriting all of the questions, using methods of psychology and psychotherapy to write questions in a way that you would be asked by someone who really knows how to probe into your life and get to your feelings, um, ultimately gives us the better insights. And I can go on and on and on about this, so I'm going to stop. <laughs> um, but for us, it's really thinking of respondents as people. Um, and that's me really speaking to the input of how we work. I would love Maria to speak to the output of, of how our methodology is a little bit different from the deliverables we give. Cause I also think that's a huge factor in what makes us different as a research company. So we, we think about empathy and we think about humanity on two sides of the spectrum. One side of the spectrum is, is that respondent, which has been commoditized. Um, and what I mean by that is people often say, you buy respondents to answer a survey, right? You buy respondents to come to a survey, uh, to a focus group, pardon, pardon me. Um, and, you know, that's that's the side of the spectrum where we say you can't buy people, you need to level with them. You need to empathize with them. You need to think about what they need to hear, what they need to feel, where they need to be, who needs to be asking the question in order to make them feel comfortable. And that's that side of the spectrum where we don't think that those folks that are lending their opinion to us are a commodity. We think about them as living, breathing humans who we are so grateful for their time and their energy. And we will do anything possible to make them feel open enough to share with us. Now, on the other side of the spectrum is our clients. And many people are very afraid of clients, right? So they think about them as this other, as this dragon, as this, you know, they're going to critique us, they're paying our bills. And again, we think about them as people. We think about them as individuals who need to get their job done, as someone who is working nine to five and is really tired and is on their 10th coffee. So we think about, okay, if we need to serve them up this data, right? How do we do it in a way that they see this email in their inbox and they're excited? They cannot wait to open it. Furthermore, reading one of our reports, I always joke, but the brief internally is we want to make the report feel like a steamy novel. I want my client listing through it excitedly, like it's something that they've been waiting for all day, all week, or month. And I want to help them make their job easier. I want to deliver the insights in a way that will get them promoted, that will get them the attention from their, their C-suite. Um, so our job is to empower our clients, to have fun with our clients, to make them, again, look forward to working with us, whether it's a phone call and we can have some fun together and make jokes, whether it's reading a report and they just sigh and say, thank you. This is so exciting. This is so interesting. 
Um, and that's how we're, we're human on those two sides of the spectrum, the inputs, the people that we're talking to, and the outputs, our clients, also the people that we're delivering to. So it's no small feat, but last year, I believe you guys serviced over $72 billion in client revenue. You started the company in 2019. That's less than five years. And as female founders, not only I know is it scary, I know that's hard to get capital to start. Um, I've had tons of female founders on the podcast and sadly the stories are very similar. Um, but on top of that, one year in, we went into the pandemic and brands were rightfully so, as everyone was freaking out because the way their consumers were consuming their goods was in a way that we've never seen before. But what I really want to talk about a little bit is around being a women disruptor. And what do you think have been the biggest challenges you guys have faced, not only in starting your business, but also I would say even at Gray or in your previous roles, uh, both of your resumes are extremely impressive if anyone wants to check them out on LinkedIn. But I think that as a female disruptor and what GoodQuest is doing is disrupting the market research industry. How do you guys handle that? And how have you found other mentors in that space that can help you along in this path? I think the world is is really changing in a beautiful way where I think that, you know, we have all become so much more aware of the need for diversity and diverse voices. And, you know, that has helped to pave our path, I think, a little bit more the last five years as well. What I will say, just to touch on your point about the pandemic and, and part of the reason that we took off was that we were already a distributed workforce, which means that we weren't centralized. We had people all over the U.S. and the world. And part of the thinking on that is, again, diversity. We thought if we can hire people from different walks of life, rural, urban, different ethnicity, different ages, et cetera, we can have diversity of thought in our company. And so when the pandemic happened and all these research companies were shutting down because they had off centralized office spaces, we were primed to take on work. We were ready. And that's part of the reason. So, you know, being a female founder, I think we just realized the importance of a diverse perspectives. And we were able to build that into the company from ground one, from day one, from the ground up. And that helped fuel the company, which has been really, really, really interesting. Um, but, you know, I think I think as a as a woman, I'm sure anyone can relate. You know, there are there are moments where you need to make yourself bigger in the room, um, speak a little bit louder, um, you know, take credit instead of saying I was lucky. I think that's something that we all very much do. Uh, one of my great mentors from for many, many years ago was actually a six foot one African-American woman. And. She told me she would always wear heels. She would wear four inch heels. And one day I asked her, I said, you know, you're, you're so tall already. You know, why do you wear heels? Maybe you'd be more comfortable in flats, just making conversation with her in the office. And she said to me, you know, I, I want to be, I want my presence felt physically as much as, and, you know, in, in any other capacity. Um, and I thought that was so interesting. And, and so, um, such such an example of the world that we live in um that you know she was going to to those lengths um to still feel to still feel like she needed to make her presence felt 
Um, so anyway, that's just an example of kind of working in this. Yeah, I think for me and Maria kind of touched on it. If you asked me, you know, how we got successful or how we were able to forge our way through the pandemic only growing, I would have said that it was luck or, you know, convenient. We did research because when the pandemic happened, people needed answers before they made a decision. And I think now one thing that I've learned that I still see a lot of women in the workforce do is do that, attribute it to something that wasn't their own hard work. And I feel that sometimes too, even from peers, even from family, just they don't mean to, but it's, oh, you got into a business that happens to be very um, growing right now, or you got into a business where you had a lot of connections. That's so good for you. But it's, you know, we worked so, so hard. And I think taking credit for the work that we do is something that, you know, I feel the need to do often as women. Um, But I will say the one nice thing that we've, we've seen a lot, because it isn't all bad being a woman in the workforce is women supporting other women. Um, You know, one of our first clients was a woman who met us really early on and just had a lot of belief in us and brought us under her wing and and at a really large company. Um, And, you know, just went out of her way to show us that she was willing to give us a voice. Um, And, you know, not that we didn't have to fight to win the business, but she would help us get our face in that room when maybe it wouldn't have been in the other um, previously. And so I think I felt a lot of support from other women and it leaves me to be eager to support other women who are in a similar um, situation now. I met with someone actually earlier today, not not choking, um, who was thinking about going off on her own and she wanted to sit down for coffee for an hour and just talk about what to expect and how to feel. Um, and more and more of those conversations keep coming up. Alan, I think we talked about last time when we chatted, but it's really opening doors for other women. I know at least for me, and I think I even invited you guys with the podcast, being able to connect with all these amazing people. I'm always saying, how can I help you grow your business? Or let me connect you with someone. One, I believe in paying it forward, but I also think why gatekeep. If I have someone that can help you win and help you succeed, it doesn't hurt me. It only helps me by helping you knowing I did a good thing or you never know who you're going to be in a room with and those six degrees of separation, you might be chatting, you realize you have a mutual connection. You never know where that can lead. So I really like how even today you uh, met with someone who is thinking about going off on their own because I know it can be extremely terrifying. If it's all right with you both, I want to pivot a little to talk a little bit more about the business. I think marketing and just agency brand especially is so big. And you see now a lot of PR moves because they're concerned about the individual's brand or how is it coming across? So I would love to kind of ask you a few more generalized questions. Um, One is, why is it so important to invest in resources and energy into building a brand in addition to just generalized marketing and advertising strategies? Wow, that's actually a very difficult question. Um, The reason for it is I think that brand is very much an intangible thing, Um, right? And marketing is a very tangible thing. Marketing is, you know, we are putting out ads, we are putting out copy, we are putting out a billboard, we are putting out a TV commercial, right? What is brand? Um, Brand is a feeling, right? Brand is what I think, what it makes me feel, what it stands for. 
um, you know, is it cool or not, right? Can you explain why something is cool? Like we, we all can't, right? It either is or it isn't. Um, and, and that's the power of brand. And the way that I like to talk about it in a business sense is it's much easier to copy products and things, right? Um, we see it happen all the time, right? If we think about the fashion world, it's a really easy example to, to make of this, right? You can have dupes, right? You can have the original purse or you can have a duplicate, whether it be um, an actual fake or if it's something that just looks very similar, right? So you can recreate the product quite easily if, if you have um, the materials, but brand is much harder to recreate. That's what we call your kind of moat right in a business that's the thing that takes a really long time to build the associations those feelings etc so the power of brand is really something that if you can build it and it's difficult to build it's something that you own that you can um that you can that you can invest behind that is very difficult for other people to steal or recreate or manufacture so that's in a very kind of easy way I like to describe the power of brand and why it's so important in today's day and age, especially as it's becoming really easy to launch um, new products, right? Online, you, you don't have to have distribution. You can just snap your fingers and, and start to sell something. But again, brand is, is much more of a long, long-term play. Colin, anything to add? No, it's funny that um, you asked that though, because I would say Maria, we, I often call her our brand goddess. I didn't understand the power of brand until I met her. Um, because like I said, I think very linearly and very objective. And I think brand is, is something hard for me physically, personally to grasp because it, it is subjective. It is, it's almost, it's a personality that you're developing that that stands for not just a product, but your business as a whole. And as Maria said, it's, it's the one thing that you can't recreate, you know, I can write a million formulas and someone can copy them. You can't own math. Um, you can't own a person who's a respondent, um, but you can own the way you approach methodologies. You can own the way that your brand stands out in the world. You can own how you as a brand represent your clients. And that's something that is, it's so hard to recreate. And again, it, it took a really long time for me to even grasp it, but now I'm the biggest advocate for it. <laughs> so speaking of brands, what are some brands top of mind quickly that you love because even individuals now have become a brand in themselves. That's a little bit hard for me. <laughs> I was going to say I kind of live under a rock. Um, I think I can speak more widely in terms of the brands in general that I'm attracted to. Um, but I think for me, it's, it's the brands that have a foundation, they mean something to me in my life greater than just the products, right? So when I think of brands that I love, this is so silly, actually. Um, and Maria's heard me say it before. I love the brand Crisco. It's so funny. I have a t-shirt by them, right? It's not like a sexy brand. It's not wearing Louboutins. It's not, um, you know, jewelry that will be passed down to my kids, but it's recipes and it's memories and the way that they've just always been in my life and the consistency, right? And so those are the kind of brands that I think always speak to me are those like, household staple brands. Um, I'm not as good with the, the, what brands are in and what brands are doing something different. That's, that's not where my world or my brain belongs, but it doesn't mean that I don't have those brands that mean something to me in some fashion. I, yeah, I, I think I have a little bit of a, of a different answer for you in the sense of, I'd love to give you and your listeners kind of the, the, one of the brand tests that I love. So if you close your eyes and you think about an event that is being thrown by Sears. 
Can you imagine what that looks like? Who's there? You know, what the feeling is that you're getting. It's very hard, right? Um, It's very hard and it's maybe a little bit bland um, for lack of a better word. Now, if you close your eyes and imagine an event being thrown by Target, you can almost instantly see the colors, the feeling, the music, the event, the energy. That's the power of brand. And Sears is a struggling company, a struggling brand versus Target has been growing and growing and growing. And, you know, if we boil it down to the baseline, they're both, you know, mass distributors, they're both retailers, but that's the power of brand. You can close your eyes and you can see each of them. Well, you could see Target come to life and you struggle to see Sears come to life. And so when I like to think of my favorite brands, they're usually the ones that I can close my eyes, imagine an event and just, you know, smell the smells, <laughs> feel the music, um, imagine the people that would be there, the clothes that would, you know, be worn, um, et cetera. So I love that as a test of a strong brand. I think both your answers hit on something, which is emotional intelligence for you, Holland, it's those memories with baking or the recipes in the family that kind of feel fill you up with that warmness. And Maria, you're talking about Target versus Sears. I love Target. It's my happy place. When I'm stressed, I like to walk the aisles of Target and it calms me down. I also end up buying stuff I don't need, but it's an emotional comfort because every Target's the same and those commercials are fun and joyful and the red is just so apparent. So it's really interesting that both of your answers really hit on why emotional intelligence is so key to brand building. I really wanted to talk a little bit about what's next. You guys are just starting your five years in, approaching your six, but there's no doubt that you are a force in this field. Have you guys thought at all about maybe doing a book or, I mean, I would even take a one-on-one class offered virtually from YouTube because it seems like the way you are approaching, and I've heard you guys consider yourself the Michael Bay of market research. And that terminology obviously come from Michael Bay's movies. They always explode and build stuff. And you're really kind of exploding this area and rebuilding it. But what's next for you two? For me, and I'll, I'll start, we just want to keep having fun and doing a good job. Um, I know that, you know, that's not maybe the most, uh, aspirational answer, but we're, we're truly our whole team, Holland and I, we're having fun breaking the rules of this industry. Um, it is marketing research, right? Which means that the output is marketing campaigns. It is uh, brand strategies, which means that, you know, it's a, it's a creative output, which means we, we have to be able to have some creativity in the, in the input. Um, and for some reason, I think, you know, not enough companies in our field are, are doing that or having fun. They're extremely clinical um, and they're extremely dry and, and a little bit staid. And so for us, you know, we want to keep breaking the mold on what this has to be. And we want to keep exciting our clients and the industry with, with, you know, a better way to get to insights and a more fun way to get to insights. Um you know, this, this category does not have to be dry. Um, and, and we're here to kind of prove that and show that in fun, in creativity, you can also have the rigor, the, the sound data, um, et cetera. So that's kind of 
my my goal driving me and I'd love to hear Holland's as well yeah I think honestly Maria touched on it quite a lot so I won't try to be redundant but I think you know the focus of us for our business in the next few years is just on that quality um I think we're really lucky to say that we can focus on quality versus quantity um because it, it really keeps our clients happy. And, and a lot of our new businesses from retention, our retention numbers are out of this world when it comes to project-based clients, it's something I'm so proud of. Um, and I think we've had, I, you know, I used to say we've had the luxury of, but we've worked really, really hard <laughs> to have a really strong team and really strong offerings to give really quality work to clients. And the trust that they have in us now is so extreme that we're able to be a little more fun and be a little bit more creative because they know it will never be at the risk of that strong, sound business decisions that they'll get at the end of the day. And for me, it's just being able to maintain that. Um, I think we've worked really hard to get to a place where business has become fun, um, which is really hard to say as a new business owner. So any new business owner out there is probably like, what? <laughs> um, Cause it's so much work. It's always on, but I think, yeah, that's the, f- the future of us. And we want to just keep growing and scaling, but at a very, you know, slow and steady pace so that we're able to maintain the happiness of our clients and our employees and our own personal lives and personal output. Well, definitely the list of your clients is impressive and long, which I think speaks to what you're talking about and how your take on the anti-research research and bringing humanity into business and brands is definitely working because you guys have been featured in Inc., Adweek, South by Southwest, all these massive news outlets. But what you're doing is almost taking away and getting down to the basics and then rebuilding, which it's so simple, but it's so effective and that you guys thought this up and really worked hard. There's definitely not a doubt that you guys will continue growing. I can't wait to see all the brands that you're helping. Um, So thank you so much for taking time to chat with me. I end every episode with the final three questions. So I'll ask the first one, then you guys can each give me your answers and we'll go from there. So the first question is, if you had a quote or a mantra that you live by, what would that be? I can start. Um, so for me, my quote, and this is constantly comes up and sorry if you hear my baby crying in the background, um, <laughs> is to be comfortable with being uncomfortable. Um, I prepared this before we, cause you gave us these prompts, obviously. Um, I prepared it before the weekend and, you know, it came up earlier, as I was saying, of you really have to be uncomfortable often as a new business owner. Um, But over the weekend, I was listening to a separate podcast and I stumbled across the quote, the only impossible journey is the one that you never begin. And I really like that one as well. I think they go hand in hand, quite frankly. Um, It's really just putting your shoe one step in a direction you might not have planned on going. And and for me, it's it's actually a mantra that I've stolen from, from my grandpa, but he always used to say to me, there's not a single thing in this world that can't be done better. And I think that drives me every single day. Um, everything that comes across my desk, whether it be a business decision or uh, a client problem, I think, you know, how can I solve this better? How can I do it better than the status quo? How can I think tangentially? Um, it's just it's just a mantra that lives with me on the day-to-day. I love both of those. And I think they really describe both of your personalities as well as your company together. The second question is, if you could relive any one day, which day would you choose? Yeah. 
I'll start again. We'll, we'll just keep rotating like this, Maria. Um, I think one day I would love to relive is actually my first day of high school. I went to a new school with people that I had never met before. And I was, I only knew one other person um, who came from the school that I was coming from. Doesn't matter. And I like sat with random people for lunch and like introduced myself to something came over me that I will never understand. And I would love to just be a fly on the wall (laughs) and look at what happened because I think I blacked out, but it became a fulcrum in my life. Like that was the moment I learned to step out of my shell. And I have no, I, to this day, have no idea what possessed me to do that. Um, it was not my personality to this day. It's not, I learned from that day, but I have no idea (laughs) what gave me the strength and the courage. Just like, I don't know, you're 14. It's like one of the most awkward times in your life. You're with all these new kids who are, they were all already friends. And yeah, I'd love to just be a fly on the wall and understand what possessed me to get that confidence to introduce myself to people and, and try to become friends with people and just learn from people in a way that I hadn't done in the past. I love that answer because I personally have been doing a lot of the shadow work, inner child work. And when you start to go back to those years of high school, middle school, you start to realize that there are certain moments that become so key that they cause the building blocks of which you stand on today. And I think that that moment of you breaking out of your shyness and just going and sitting with people kind of was that first step into who you are today. And so I love that you're looking back saying, this was a moment, you know, a lot of people say when their children were born or when they got married. And I love those answers because they're so full of love. But this answer, you're saying, I did something I was uncomfortable and kind of kept doing it. So to all those individuals who are shy or your first day of work, or you walk into those networking events and you don't know anyone, it's so uncomfortable. Just go and say hi and take Holland's advice and do the, if she can do it at 14, you can do it now. So thank you for sharing that. Sorry to interrupt. Maria, go ahead. No, absolutely not. I mean, that's a beautiful answer. Mine, mine is a little bit different. Most of my happiest days and my fondest memories are honestly with my husband. And he's also been my greatest supporter and and kind of advocate of of starting my own business. But my favorite memory with him is actually uh, one of my birthdays. I think it was my 29th birthday. We had only been dating about three months. And he broke into my apartment at the time to set up a record player as a gift and had my favorite record playing when I entered home from work. Um, So, you know, I just remember that moment just feeling so full of love and feeling so supported. And again, just, you know, feeling like you have an advocate. So again, you know, I'm, I'm the biggest proponent of, you know, having that, that circle of people that you can rely on and trust. And whether that be a business partner, you know, to start a business with that you um, that you're going to grow together, or whether that be your partner at home, who's going to just support you and tell you they believe in you. Anyway, that was my favorite day that I would love to relive over and over and over again. <laughs> I'm sure after that, you probably knew he was the one, but what album was it of curiosity? It was Bill Withers. I don't know if you know Bill Withers. I'm, I'm a sucker for Bill Withers. <laughs> oh no, I love it. And that segues perfectly into the last question, which is if you had a theme song that played every time you walked into a room, which song would you choose? 
Mallory, I can't tell you how much anxiety this gave me. <laughs> I was like, oh, I've got so many. There's so many moments of my life. Some of them are so highly inappropriate. Um, and I honestly listened to like playlists and playlists and playlists. Murray can even tell you I was sending her things like, what if it's this? I don't know. Um, but where I landed on it's it's been a hype song to my past year, I would say. I played it to my son in utero and I played it to him. He was in the NICU for three weeks after he was born. I played it to him every single day and it's Sade by your side. I'm obsessed with it. It's not necessarily a hype song, but oh, it's the more beautiful. I thought about it, it's a beautiful song. The more I thought about it, that song has been everywhere with me. And I love that you asked me about my mom today. My mom plays an interesting role in my life, but I love that song because when I was a kid, she used to have a stationary bike and every Sunday morning she would ride her stationary bike and listen to that Sade album. Then she used to listen to it to it when she would drive me to work. And I didn't realize that I used to play it to my son until I put it down on this list. So thank you for making me rack my brain, but yeah. It might make some people cry, but it's been my my it's personal a, life hype song. <laughs> I, I I was on one of my playlists last night. I love it. And just a fun fact, she's rumored to be going on tour again. So get Stop. ready, I swear, with a new album coming. So I know I've uh, heard some of the new songs. Yeah. Good to know. Maybe I'll yeah. see you at one. <laughs> I was going to say, maybe we'll make this a group thing. Um, Maria, go ahead. I'm excited to hear yours. Oh God, mine, mine's a silly one. I also, I had so much anxiety about picking this one through my whole Spotify list. I'm going to go with a song that's been getting me through my weightlifting sessions, which I've been into since I also gave birth. I've decided to get into deadlifting and all sorts of stuff, but um, it's this artist called Labyrinth and he has a song called Mount Everest. Um, now I'm sure it's a much deeper meaning to what he says on the surface, but I can't even tell you how much that song gets me going when I'm about to lift some heavy ass weight. <laughs> so that's I, my hub song. <laughs> I love it. I can hear it in my head. I think that's actually a great weightlifting song. So both those songs are going to be added to the For Your Listening Pleasure theme song playlist on Spotify. So listeners can get hyped up or chilled down or whatever they want with all of our guest theme songs. So thank you again so much. This has been so lovely getting to know you both and speak with you. I really appreciate your candor and openness talking about what life was like for you guys growing up as well as creating good quests. So thank you again so much for joining me on the podcast. Thanks, thank Mallory. You.